Old Testament reading, Genesis 3, 6 to 21. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Um, response to God's word, all. The Grass withers, the flower fades, but the Lord of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Sam. Would you remain standing as we pray? Heavenly Father, this morning we just open our hearts to you and we pray that you would just lead your people through your spirit into the deep mysteries of your word, that we would know you, that we would love you, and that we'd give ourselves fully to you. Teach us to want what you want. Teach us to surrender fully to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Happy Advent. During this season of Advent, we're doing a, a, a we're pausing on First and Second Samuel, and we're doing a little mini sermon series called uh, "The Mothers of Jesus." And the reason why we picked this um, 
is, well, Advent is a season, right, that rehearses the reality of the world prior to the arrival of its king, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Well, mothers in their pregnancy represent both the pain and joy at the arrival of a little one. And Jesus, God incarnate, was born of a woman. He has a mother. And Mary experienced all the real expectation and pain of bearing a child. Mary's pain was redeemed in unimaginable ways. But here's the thing. There is a long line of women in Jesus' lineage whose pain is redeemed. So if you were to read right away in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see there the lineage of Jesus. And you'll see names there like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. And these women all experienced incredible pain, and yet their stories are vital. Without them, the lineage of Jesus breaks. And so their stories are redeemed. If they could have known that the Son of God would come to save his people through their lineage. And so we're going to begin this lineage study even earlier than Abraham. So in Matthew's lineage account begins with Abraham. But we're going to go even further back than he does, all the way back in this first sermon to Eve, who is called from our passage, verse 20, the mother of all living. Because it's her story. It's hers that makes sense of the dark world that we live in. But it's also her story that gives a redemption unimaginable in her pain. See, this story of Eve is our story. And you must understand it that way. See, God's people are a people of a story, right? We, we share a common one together. It's a story, but it's a true one. And in fact, each week we come together to remind each other of that story. But more than just telling that story, we also inhabit a story. We are story dwellers. When a person loses the sense that they inhabit a story, they feel like their life is void of purpose. We are living a story, and we're looking with eyes of faith to see God at work in our world. Now, because we are story dwellers, our souls can see metaphor, right? We, we actually inhabit and create metaphor. And we do that especially during the season of Advent. Just look around, right? Or maybe just think about things that you've done in the past. Maybe you have attended a candlelight service where we come, we turn off all the lights, and we sit together in a dark room. And why do we do that? Because we know from our story that there is a real thing in our world called darkness. There's a deep shadow cast across the world. Sin has made our world and our lives a real place of sadness tragedy, and loss. And in this season, we, we sing special songs, don't we? Songs of waiting, of lament, of expectation. For someone to come 
and to fix it, fix this brokenness. And we even, we plead in our songs, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that, that letter O, that is a word of pleading, please come, please come, Emmanuel. But we don't only sing about darkness, we also sing about the light. Our, our Advent readings tell us that those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so we don't just sit in dark rooms, we light candles. We drape lights across every part of our homes. And we do this because it tells the story. And songs must be sung and light must be seen. The lights are the author's clever way of signaling to the actors and actresses that something is changing. And we are the actors and the characters in the story. And then our songs change and we shout and we believe joy to the world. And we do this because it is Advent. And we enter Advent, remember, remembering that God invaded this dark world and that it really matters. So this morning, we're going to the very first Advent, the beginning of Advent with the story of Eve, the very first mother of Jesus. But even as the story plunges immediately into darkness, embers and a warm glow of redemption for Eve and for us are just as immediate. So we're going to study this first Advent story in two ways. First, we're going to look at these embers or this light of pursuit, and second, through the light of promises. So pursuit and promises. Let's begin with light of pursuit. Do you remember a moment in your life when you first encountered the brokenness of this world? Where the, the naivety and the innocence of your youth was shattered. For some, you've never known a day without brokenness. For others, there's an event. So I am number three of four, uh, two older brothers. My brothers are Mexican, but you know, they're Irish twins. Y'all know what that is? They're born in the same year. And they're five years older than me. So when my oldest brother was nine, I was four, and he was just starting to get into these model cars. And if you were around in the 80s, you remember these model cars are very complex, special glue. You put them all together. And um, I'm not sure why I did it, but a thing happened. And I grabbed that model car, and I threw it against the wall, and I shattered it. And I don't know what I thought would happen, but I destroyed it irreparably. And as soon as I did it, I had immediate feelings of, what have I done? Oh, I wish I could undo it. I want to fix this, but I can't. Nothing my brother did merited this reaction. My brother's nine-year-old eyes immediately filled with tears, and I could see the pain that I caused. But just as immediately, he grabbed a metal lunchbox. Remember those? The ones with the thermoses and the cup, right? Mine was a He-Man. And I took off running, 
He runs faster. And at point blank range, he threw that lunchbox at my head. I turned around and it hit me square in the back and my head busted wide open. And heads bleed, y'all. Immediately, I was covered in blood. And I sat there and cried with my hands full of blood. But I don't remember the pain. The pain is not what I remember. I remember being frightened. More than pain was a broken heart. I still could not believe what I had done. I, I wanted to put the model car back together again, but I couldn't. But I couldn't. That's a picture of what you see in Genesis 3. It's the painful sense that something has come, a darkness, and it can't be fixed. Darkness has broken through, and Eve knows it, and we, together with the world, have fallen into cosmic deformity and darkness. And in a very real way, that darkness remains with us to this day. And you know this darkness. You feel it in your bodies that don't work like they should. You feel it in your lives. You feel it in your fears. Now, the story starts there, but it does not end there. See, right away in our text, we see redemption breaking into the story. We see an ember of light breaking and disrupting the darkness. You have to remember the context. God said to Eve and to Adam, hey guys, have at it. May this entire garden be an, an eternal banquet of love and delight and communion. But please, just don't eat from this one tree and you're going to have to trust me on this and trust me just because you love me. And Eve grabbed that model car and smashed it against the wall. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, ate, and gave some to her husband. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves. Now, we all know this story, but it's easy to forget that this story opens with the tragedy of humans going into hiding. This is tragic because we were not made to hide. We were made for intimacy with God and with one another, but they've gone into hiding and we have been in hiding ever since. Now listen, we tell the truth about this tragedy, but we also remember that this is a real story, but it is not the end of the story because immediately the story moves into God's pursuit. You see, the text depicts God walking in the garden. Now listen carefully. This is not God taking an afternoon stroll. He is pursuing his people as soon as you hear the crunch of the fruit, then the very next sound that Adam and Eve hear is verse 8, the sound of the Lord walking. 
Now think about this. Everything is now falling. Eve and Adam's hearts ache like nothing they have ever experienced. And God says, I'm not walking away from this. I'm walking to you. And God speaks to them to bring them out of hiding, to be seen. And these are perhaps some of the the most beautiful words that have ever been put on paper. We see God pursuing them in this moment of paralyzing shame. And he does it with so much warmth. See, God's light produces a warmth. It doesn't burn, it warms. How so? Well, in verses 9 and 11 and 13, you'll see that he asks them these successive questions. Verse 9, where are you? Verse 11, well, who told you that you're naked? Verse 13, what is this that you have done? Now, it's really important for you to see this. It's not that God doesn't know the answer or even that he personally needs an answer. It's that they need an answer. Eve needs an answer. With the same lips that are still stained with the forbidden fruit, that same mouth needs now to learn to speak truth again. They need to hear what is true and what is beautiful once again. These are questions that are questions of restoration. God is bringing them back. God says, you can tell me where you are. You can tell me what you've done because I already know and I'm pursuing you in it. I am staying. I will pursue you in your shame. Now, here's the question that I have for myself, and I want to invite you into my inner life. Does the reality of God's pursuit in my shame have anything to do with my real life? All the things that we feel, these things that we feel about ourselves, our self-hatred, our insecurity... These things that seem to define us in our soul, this misery. I want you to locate that that darkness or that estrangement, that shame, that hiding. I want you to locate that in in the larger context of a God who runs after you right away. See, many of us are living our lives as if God is hiding in the garden and we're pursuing him. But that is not true. That is not the story. The story of the Bible is a God who comes to his people first. He came to Eve. He came to Adam. And he comes to us. And when you struggle with pride or despair or profound shame... Do not hide, and for heaven's sake, do not try to cover yourself. God does not run away from us. He runs to us. Do you see this warm, glowing ember of redemption in the text? Do you see that? 
bringing the light of God's pursuit. That's our first point. Let's keep going to our second point, and let's look for the light of God's promises. So as our passage continues, uh, verse 13 ends with Eve telling God what happens. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then from verses 14 and 19, you'll notice in your text that it's all indented. You see that? It's almost in the form of poetry. What follows is, is a series of promises. God is resolved to do something. Promises in a moment of tragedy do something very profound. If you can remember uh, my story of uh, smashing the model car and the sadness I felt even as my hands were covered in blood, my mom immediately comes to me. There is this um, powerful force of love in Latin mothers. They're armed with it. There's a kind of strength. Uh, <clears throat> it's kind of hard to describe. But the power of my mother's love is not to conquer, but it does feel like it can make oceans stand still. Now my, <clears throat> now my head is bleeding, and at this point my clothes are cut, soaked in blood, and my mother seems unnerved. I mean, she's serious, but somehow the seriousness of her presence comforts me. So she grabs a dish towel, she presses it up against my head, and then she holds me close to her chest. Now, I wasn't really crying until I nestled my face into her chest and her, head, and her hand was on my head. And now she's getting bloody too. And as my head's like hidden in her chest, you know, I'm uh, overly emotional. What's wrong with me? Here we go. I'm saying to her, I'm sorry, mama. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And she gently hushes me. And I ask, am I going to be okay? And she says, yes, mijo. You're going to be fine. Well, how do you know, Mom? She says, because I said so. You know, mothers have this uh, powerful and unique way of imaging God that is so powerful, a power, an elegance, a calming presence, but there's this fierce surety to them. She says, because I said so. Now listen to me. There was no doubt in my four-year-old heart that if my mom promised that things would be okay, then they would be okay. Now, I don't have many memories of what happens next. I know that I went to the ER. I know that I got a ton of stitches. I know that I have a huge star, uh, scar on the back of my head that I try to cover with longer hair in the back. I don't remember really any of that, but what I do remember is getting a soft serve at McDonald's afterwards. <laughs> it was just me and my mom. Uh, we were very 
humble, so we didn't go out to eat very often in my childhood. So this was a really big deal. And there I was, eating ice cream, paid for with money that I didn't have. Promises and provision. If you can understand a little bit behind my story, you're really starting to understand this, what this next poetic section is all about. If you read it carefully, you'll really surprisingly feel its warmth and see its light. If you've ever studied Christian theology, you know that this next section is foundational for our understanding of God and man and even of the world. And I can't get to every detail, but let me highlight a few promises in this text Uh, These words are true because God said so. First, there is a promise that evil will be destroyed, that all darkness, alienation, alienation, disease, sorrow, and death will be abolished. Now, those words sound lofty, but these are not abstractions. In concrete ways, these manifestations of darkness will be rolled back. And I know you can understand this. You know all too well what it is like to live under the curse. I know you know that. The curse will be vanquished. Verse 14 starts by God saying to the serpent, who is this figure of evil, he says, because you have done this, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. Those are words of humiliation and of defeat. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, your alliance is forever broken. He goes on and says, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a very poetic way of saying that while... uh, um, is saying that, that while you will wound this child of Eve, this eventual redeemer, this mysterious figure, he will end you, he says to the serpent. You messed up. It's over. Your destruction is sure. Death will be put to death, you see. And then there's this second promise. It's a promise of provision First for Eve and then to Adam. God speaks first to Eve, verse 16. Look there. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then God says to Adam in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. Verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, these passages are not the ones that you write using cute calligraphy and put up in your living room. There is a darkness and a weightiness to these words. God said that Adam and Eve's rebellion would lead to death, and it did. But what interests me is what God is doing in the middle of this death and darkness In this very precise moment, God is saying, Eve, you are going to have babies. Adam, you're going to have a farm. And it's going to be hard. 
but stuff's going to grow. You're going to have kids, and it will hurt, and raising them might even hurt more than the birthing process. And you will eat plants of the garden, and your hands will bleed because of the thorns. It's going to be hard, but God says my purposes will remain. In fact, they will prevail even in this dark moment. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Like in the middle of cosmic, universal, mind-warping corruption and death, God is talking about babies and food. (laughs) Why? Because God's promises overcome even when things look bleak. God said so, and so it is. God promised that death will be destroyed, that his promises overcome even the consequences of the curse. And this is not a fairy tale. This is not a game, and this is not a fantasy. His promises of restoration will prevail. And for this reason, things like beauty and life and light matter and that they really exist. And these promises define the very story that you and I are inhabiting. God's promised redemption is where the story is going. It's how it ends. Light, not darkness, light is the last word in the cosmic story that we are telling. And what this means is that Christian faith is a faith that is governed by promises. Christianity is not fundamentally what you do or don't do. Christianity is fundamentally about God's promises, what you believe or don't believe. And if it's not God's promises that define your life, then it is not Christian. And so our lives are intended to live in that light. Our lives are characterized by how we respond to these promises. And it gives us this wildly hopeful disposition. And so when it starts getting dark in Denver at 4.45 p.m., we see that darkness and we protest it and we implement our weapons of metaphor and symbolism. And we come together and we sing certain songs and we hang thousands of lights and we put up ornaments And we bring greenery inside the house. And we make cookies. And we drink mulled wine and eggnog. And if you're Puerto Rican, coquito. And we hear, or we wear these hilariously red, funny-looking sweaters. And we send pictures of our families to one another. And we hang stockings and wreaths. And we burn candles with aromas of spices and cinnamon. And why do we do this? Because we understand that God has made promises to his people and that it matters. Everything is different because of those promises and God is keeping them. And we live into those promises and we reflect them in our lives. You see And so let me quickly conclude. This morning, we, uh, we started a sermon series on the mothers of Jesus. 
And the arrival of Jesus is first depicted in the history of Eve. Eve, together with her husband Adam, plunged into the darkness, but just as immediate, God counters with redemption. This redemption begins with this immediate pursuit, and then it comes with unbreakable promises. His pursuit and promises are like creating this warm ember of light against the cold darkness. Darkness is not how the story ends. You know, I think about Eve and my quiet, imaginative moments. I can almost hear her sobbing words like mine. I'm so sorry. What have I done? I'm so, so sorry. And just like my mom, I can almost hear God gently shushing her, allowing her tears to soak him. God redeems Eve's story and gives her a lineage of honor. I mentioned earlier in verse 15, we see God promising that a child from her lineage would ultimately become the redeemer, the protagonist of all history. Now, Eve would never meet this great, 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 great grandson of God, but she would know him. And let me explain why I know this. In chapter 2, we're told that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And then after eating the fruit, their own nakedness now accuses them. And they feel shame. And they hide from God and they try to cover their own shame with fig leaves. But their attempts to heal their wounds and to cover their shame was not enough. In this story, we see the horrors of sin. It's not pretty. It's not delightful. It's not cute, it's awful, and sin brings death. And we need to be honest about this. We need to be honest about the deep sadness and shame that has come upon us. Like Eve and Adam, the healing of our wounds and the covering of our shame is necessary. See, the, the fig leaves were not about clothing. It's about covering something to deal with the shame. When the very last verse, in verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. God was dealing with their shame. We don't know where these skins come from, but it appears that God has killed an animal to cover their shame. In a place with no death, God has killed an animal to cover their shame. From the very beginning, even in the moment of Eve's broken heart, God provided a covering for his people's shame through the death of another on their behalf. Eve had a foretaste of what this eventual Redeemer would do the death of another on her behalf. And with a trembling and holy voice, the New Testament would tell us precisely how. Behold, 
the Lamb of God. Behold, the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin, who takes away the shame of the world. Let him cover you and cover your shame and clothe you with righteousness. Church, this is, this is your story. Shame is real, darkness is profound, and wounds are persistent. This is where you and I live. We know this from the story, but the story does not end there. You know where it ends. You know where this ends. So for today, light candles, decorate with tinsel, sing songs, give gifts, eat Christmas cookies. All this is a way to remember that God has come near and pursued and provided and made promises in our darkest hour. Amen.